Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Anne Hawley, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a Global Fool's Cap worksheet, and then discuss it using the editor's six core questions. This week, we're throwing the lasso of truth around the 2017 superhero action movie, Wonder Woman, and making it tell us the truth about its story. Wonder Woman was directed by Patty Jenkins from a screenplay principally credited to Alan Heinberg. But Jason Fuchs and Jack Snyder have story by credits, and a note in the Amazon X-Ray suggests that they and Patty Jenkins, the director, rewrote parts of the script. So let's see whether this story avoids or succumbs to the curse of multiple writers. Here's a synopsis of the story adapted from Wikipedia. In present-day Paris, Diana receives a case from Wayne Enterprises containing a World War I-era photograph of herself and four men. In a flashback, we see that she was raised on Themyscira, the hidden island of the Amazon warrior women. Young Diana learns the Amazon's history from her mother, Queen Hippolyta. The god Ares, son of Zeus, orchestrated humanity's destruction. Zeus died after wounding him, but not before leaving a weapon called the God Killer for the Amazons to use if Ares ever returned. In 1917, Diana, now a young, trained warrior, rescues American pilot Steve Trevor when his plane crashes off the coast. The Germans on his tail invade the island and the Amazons defeat them. When interrogated, Steve reveals that a great war is consuming the world outside. Believing Ares to be responsible for this war, Diana takes the god-killer sword and her magical lasso and leaves Themyscira with Steve to find Ares and stop him for good. In London, Diana, who speaks most languages, translates a coded notebook for the Supreme War Council and for Sir Patrick Morgan, who is seeking an armistice with Germany. This notebook reveals a German plan to release a new poison gas at the Western Front and win the war. So against orders, Steve assembles a team of misfits and, with funding from Sir Patrick, goes to the front in Belgium to stop the chemical attack. Diana reveals her Wonder Woman character by leaving the trenches and crossing no man's land alone, fending off machine gun fire with her armor and her shield. Together, the team liberates a nearby village, and during the celebration that follows, Diana and Steve grow closer romantically. When they infiltrate the nearby High German Command, Diana meets General Ludendorff, and believing him to be the god Ares, plans to kill him. But before she can do that, Ludendorff unleashes the experimental gas on the village they have just liberated, killing all of its inhabitants. Diana runs him through with a god-killer sword and is disillusioned when his death doesn't bring the war to an immediate end. Then Sir Patrick, the supposed champion of Armistice, appears and reveals himself as Ares. He says that although he has whispered violence into human ears, ultimately doing the violence is their decision. Humans, he says, are inherently corrupt. He wants Diana to help him restore paradise on earth by destroying humanity, but she refuses. When she attacks him with the god-killer sword, he simply disintegrates it and reveals that it is Diana, not the sword, who is the god-killer, created by Zeus and therefore a demigoddess herself. 
Steve's team, meanwhile, destroys the chemical lab and Steve hijacks the bomber carrying the poison. He flies it to a safe altitude and detonates it, sacrificing himself. Remembering his love, Diana defies Ares and declares humans to be all he says they are, but so much more. She deflects Ares' lightning bolts back into him, killing him for good. The war ends, and back in London, Steve's team sadly commemorates his sacrifice. Once more in the present day, Diana sends an email to Bruce Wayne, thanking him for the photograph, then reaffirms her new and lasting mission that only love can save the world, and so she will fight and give for the world she knows is possible. So a very exciting and fun movie to watch. And we're going to launch into the six core questions now by examining what is the global genre. Leslie, take it away. The global genre is an action story, but which subgenre and plot? I've settled on action, epic, savior, and that's a hero versus a villain intent on social destruction. I considered whether the villain could be human nature, which would be action-adventure environment, but in the core event when Diana is truly at the mercy of the villain and then defeats him, Ares is the foe that she faces. He uses human nature as a weapon to destroy people so the gods can enjoy the earth without pesky human interference, but he's the big bad. Action stories don't require an internal genre, but Wonder Woman has an apparent one, which is worldview maturation. So Friedman's cause and effect statement for worldview maturation, that is literary critic Norman Friedman, describes worldview maturation this way. When a sympathetic protagonist with naive black and white views of the world and mistakenly conceived goals experiences a loss or trial that shows them the world is multi-layered and imperfect, they embrace better suited goals and actions. So Diana is sympathetic because she's in the dark about so much, but she is also quite determined. She possesses a naive worldview that war arises because of a single powerful bad guy that makes everyone start killing, but also about what it takes to defeat Ares, stick him with the pointy end of the god-killer sword. And that naive worldview causes her to adopt the goal to end all war by killing Ares with the god-killer sword. She can't hear that the situation could be more complicated than she understands it to be. At times, her attitude is like that of a petulant child. And my mom would say she comes by it honestly, given her mother's belief that the best way to protect her is to keep her in the dark and that her initial success when she reaches the front blinds her to a, the bigger challenge she faces. Diana experiences a trial. Ares is a tough foe, and loss, the gas attack on the villagers as well as Steve's death, and she learns that she can't defeat Ares with anger and violence. It makes sense, really, that she can't out-anger or fight the god of war. She defeats him by growing up, 
metabolizing his anger as well as her own and using that energy to create peace and love. The theme song could be love is all you need, though probably that isn't true, as we all know from looking at the human needs tanks. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yes, that's so great, Leslie. I totally agree with you that the internal genre is worldview maturation. What was really interesting in trying to determine it was I found lots of elements that set up a worldview revelation plot that are woven throughout the story. You know, the fact that she doesn't know that she is the God killer. And it's this information that's kept from her, this factual knowledge about herself. And so that was set up. And so I was tracking with that. But really, the climax does not revolve around that revelation. That comes fairly early in the ending payoff where Ares just straight up tells her, you know, after he destroys the sword, that was not the God killer. You are the God killer. And so from there, we still have so much more that she needs to go through internally before she can defeat the villain. So the climax doesn't revolve around that. It revolves around, you know, her coming to that more sophisticated worldview, like you said. And I love maturation because it feels like this combination of disillusionment as well as education. So it feels like, you know, a bit like being disillusioned to what you thought was true and subsequently finding meaning in the fact that you don't have it all figured out and that the truth is simultaneously more complicated and more simple than we allow it to be. I've thought that Diana discovers the complicated truth that humanity is irrevocably flawed, but also the simplest truth that love is always the answer. Yeah, what what I found interesting about this one and, and Valerie actually brought this up in our uh, pre-call is that uh, in this particular version of Wonder Woman, Diana is portrayed as a little more airheady. And I'm if, if any of you who, who are out there saw the 1975 TV series with Linda Carter, whom I had a big crush on, by the way, she was just awesome. <laughs> um, she was much more worldly and sophisticated and sharp. She had it all together. It was really interesting, the contrast when she was working for the, the agency, kind of hires her out with Steve. Um, you know, she'd be in long pants and she'd be in turtlenecks and you just, you know, glasses, hair back, like super not revealing her, you know, her power. Just like this one. I mean, they, they sort of did the same thing and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But um, I mean, I really loved that TV show, the $6 million man, you know, the bionic woman, um, all were just great. You know, Lindsay Wagner as the bionic woman was awesome. And I totally had a crush on her as a young man as well. So it's, uh, it's these, it, I don't know why during that time I was like into this superhero stuff, but Hey, you know, I was young. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it, the airheadedness and I know, I know Valerie agreed with me on this. It kind of distracted you know, from her power, I would have liked to have seen her be a little less naive because she's not naive. I mean, she's a, she's a goddess, right? I mean, just like why are, you know, Aries and all those other people are like put together and like, you know, like worldly, but yet again, she's not worldly. So I, I was a little disappointed in that, but again, this is a great, great action movie. Well, I find that her her naivete is really a powerful starting point for the story because that's what she has to shed. I mean, she is incredibly naive. She's sheltered. She's not stupid. And she's very powerful and she's well-trained. But she's been protected from the truth by her by an overprotective mother. And 
her arc of becoming worldly is is felt to me like a really important and gratifying part of the story. So Kim, let's go through the beginning beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff and see how we're doing on the structure. Yeah, so the structure here for the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff is really clear, which makes me so happy uh, because otherwise it can be really you know difficult to suss out. And so it makes it a really satisfying experience to find these really clear turning points um, that lead to a really clear crisis, that ultimate climax choice and resolution. So in the beginning hook, you know, that inciting incident is really when, you know, the outside world literally crashes in with our secluded island. You know, we have the pilot, Steve, that crashes near the island. And then, you know, we have the battle on the beach and all of these things. And that progressively complicating thing, you know, we war comes to the island and we, um, we lose, we lose um, some of our, our Amazon comrades. And it ultimately leads to this turning point when Diana learns about the great world war. So they have Steve in the lasso of truth and they make him, you know, spill everything. And, and she learns about this war that's consuming the world. It's all these countries. There's so much death. You know, it's something that the world has never seen before. And something of that magnitude, you know, it makes Diana believe this has to be Aries. This is what we were created for ultimately was to destroy him. So now that leads us to the crisis question, which I view as irreconcilable goods. It's really, you could go to war to defeat Ares, which is what we were created to do, or we could stay home and stay safe. And this really plays nicely with Steve, you know, he shares this thing that his father always told him that said, you know, you can either do something or do nothing. And I already tried nothing. And um, as a screenwriter and the way they play with dialogue, this is really great because it, it piggybacks right off of um, what Diana's mother had said, where she's, you know, really putting it in her place and says, you know, you are not Amazon and you will do nothing. And so then when he says that to her, it's really that ignition moment that kicks her over into making her climax decision and her action, which is where she takes up her armor, the lasso, the shield and the sword that she believes to be the God killer. And she makes that deal with Steve that she'll get him off the Island if he takes her to Aries. And then the final resolution is of course, um, saying goodbye to her mother. Her mother says, you know, you're the greatest love of my life, but in this moment, you're my great sorrow. And that's a perfect illustration of how a resolution often results with additional complications. So the middle build, we always say, you know, the villain owns the middle build. So perfectly here, the inciting incident is um, Dr. Maru and General Ludendorff are conspiring. We really get to see um, how powerful they are. Um, Dr. Maru enhances General Ludendorff's strength with this special gas compound. And so we can really start to see what we're up against. And, you know, this isn't just a uh, the world war that uh, we know or learn from history, there's this extra element added to it of evil. Um, and then it progressively complicates, you know, with Diana and London, we've got this wonderful fish out of water, fun stuff. And that ultimately leads us to this midpoint shift where we make it to the front um, and Diana reveals her armor and steps out onto no man's land and crosses no man's land, um, you know, because she is a woman, of course. And then ultimately the turning point is a solo moment, I think, when they're on the phone with Etta, who's their kind of like on the ground operations manager person who's helping run their um, run their job. And through this conversation, Diana comes to the conclusion that Ludendorff must be Ares because he's the one that's behind this horrible, you know, the, the gas and all of the death and he's really leading the charge and all that stuff. So this must be Ares. And that prompts her crisis question, which again feels like irreconcilable goods. You know, do we focus on finding and killing Ludendorff, which we believe is Ares, which should ultimately stop the war? 
or do we focus on finding and stopping the gas? And so the climax here is Diana splits from Steve. Um, they go their separate ways and she goes to find Ludendorff and kills him. But the resolution here, the that uh, result of that choice and the additional complication is the war does not end. And she has to realize that her original goal was not correctly conceived. Um, and then that takes us into the ending payoff where the inciting incident is Sir Patrick shows up and reveals that he is in fact Ares, dun, dun, dun. And the progressive complications are that Ares destroys the God killer sword and that totally scraps Diana's plan. So then he, you know, tells her that she is in fact the God killer and reveals her parentage as the daughter of Zeus and that only a God can kill another God. And the turning point here, I think is when Steve dies, he's, um, he's destroying the gas in the plane. So he, he takes off, he self-sacrifices to get rid of the gas. And this moment really um, unlocks Diana's inner rage and vengeance against against humanity um, that are nearby. And so that that turn in her, this action turn, is leads to her crisis question. You know, and Ari, Ari, as Ares taunts her to kill Dr. Uh, Maru, um, he says, you know, because she deserves it. You know, they're corrupt. All humanity, all humanity deserves it. And this is really that best bad choice. You know, do you fight for humanity even though they're flawed and corrupt? Or do you let them be destroyed because they do deserve it? And in the climax moment, you know, she remembers Steve's words um, and he's really been her mentor throughout this whole thing. And he realized and she realizes that love is the answer. And she tells Aries, you know, that it's not about deserve. It's about what you believe. And I believe in love. And then she in the action of that decision, you know, she kills Aries with her badass love power. And that's it's totally epic and awesome. Um, and so the resolution of this is, you know, the war ends and ultimately we get to, that's why now we celebrate Armistice Day and peace. So the structure here um, is really great and really clear. So it really hits the the genre, um, all of the moments that create that spine. So we can see that the action genre is very clear and the maturation story is very clear. So as of this moment, I would say that uh, they, they really passed the challenge of having uh, multiple writers and they did a great job of, of writing a story that works. I thought the midpoint shift was especially clear. Uh, Diana throwing yeah. off the sort of Victorianish garments and revealing herself and in her full Wonder Woman glory and going after the bad guys across no man's land. Yeah, it was very gratifying, very satisfying. Just brilliant. Just, I mean, like she, I, I like the the line that's, I think the, the best line is when Steve is like, no man can go through um, no man's land. They've been sitting here for for a year trying to get this. And I think she says something like, well, I'm not a man. <laughs> I am no man. I think that line was used in another movie. <laughs> <laughs> that That is my, my girlfriend has seen this movie like five times. That's her favorite line because it's just like there, there's the point where you're like, okay, you know, she, you know, as wonder, as wonder woman, you know, even though she's naive and, and, and they, portray her that way but she all she wants to do is help people i mean like there's no ego involved i mean she's a god she's she's she is who she is right but what's what's just brilliant is that particular one that shifts the whole movie you're like oh now things are gonna change and you know even even after yeah i know i know <laughs> i got the shield and you know but and even though you know she goes over the over the trench 
Then Steve and the, and the other guys go over the trench and then they're like, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, she's like taking the brunt of it. And then they all kind of pour out and, you know, try to save the town. So really kind of neat. Talk about the perfect midpoint shift. <laughs> so one other thing I've noticed about midpoints is when there's an internal genre and external genre at play, there's often what feels like two midpoint shifts. You'll have an internal midpoint shift and an external midpoint shift. Now, I've observed that the often the internal one comes first, um, and it's almost as if it's the fuel that they'll need going forward to continue on what they're doing. Um, now here it comes, the internal shift comes almost exactly at one hour and 10 minutes. And it's when she's talking with chief and they're around the fire. And, um, and I just want to stop here and point out that, um, yes, Diana is naive, but she's an idealist. And I love that about her. And I really enjoy, you know, the way she's portrayed in this, um, because I can really relate to that, uh, idealist view and it's, it's champions it for me. And I love it. So she's talking to Chief and she's asking him, you know, why don't you fight? I don't understand. And he mentions, you know, my people lost everything in the last war that we fought in. And she asks, you know, wait, why? Who? What happened? And and he says, you know, he points to Steve and he says, well, we lost it to Steve's people. And so at this moment, this is a great you know shift for her of cognitive dissonance. You know, it really forces her to look at this the initial stages of the corruption of humanity. And she has to, you know, look at someone like Steve and chief and that wait, they're friends and they're getting along, but, but there's this legacy of, you know, war and violence against one another that, you know, humanity has. And it just brings in this additional complexity that she's not quite ready to deal with yet. Um, And so she doesn't really have to deal with this again until um, towards the end of the middle build when they lose the village, um, the village is attacked um, with the gas and she gets in Steve's face at that moment. She's really angry about everyone being corrupt. And, and so, yeah, so I just think it's important, you know, we have that amazing external midpoint shift where she, you know, reveals her armor and and crosses the no man's land. But there's also these other midpoint shifts um, that are more internal. So that one's about her maturation story. And it's an interesting question whether which one comes first, and it's going to depend on what kind of story you're trying to tell. Does the external action change the character's internal point of view or vice versa? So, Jory, take us through the obligatory scenes. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, as we've been talking about a lot, I mean, this, this movie uh, kind of really does have these really nice uh, points, you know, it, it, it follows the global, you know, genre of action. Um, but, uh, on some of the obligatory scenes, it's a little unclear, um, at least one of them that we've all kind of agreed on, but we'll get to that in a second. So the first one, an inciting attack by the villain, this happens, uh, relatively quickly, uh, when the Germans find the Island and attack the Amazons because they're chasing Steve. Uh, so that's really pretty clear. Uh, the second one, hero sidesteps responsibility to take action. And and Valor and I had talked about this beforehand, and I don't really see this one. I mean, Wonder Woman's just like all in, good to go. Let's get after it. There's just no she, – she's like, I'm in. The, no convincing. I mean, her mother has to be convinced. But then again, her mother knows the truth and knows that it's Diana's destiny to defeat Ares and it's the job of the Amazons to protect the world. So even though she shelters her, doesn't want her to know, 
um, you know, eventually, I mean, she, she just cannot stop Diana from trying to, to save the world. Um, you know, forced to leave the ordinary world, the hero lashes out. And as we talked about before, <laughs> you know, uh, Diana's world is actually the one I'd rather be in <laughs> our world. Um, but she, you know, goes from her, her Island, um, out to the, to our world or to the society that's under war. Uh, and you know, she is, she has to fulfill her destiny as the, as the God killer, even though she doesn't know that. Uh, but she is, you know, she's, you know, there's the great scene where she's leaving on the boat and her mom shows up and kind of like mom says, Hey, I'm not going to fight you on this, even though she doesn't want her to go. Cause Diana is like, no, I'm going, I'm not, I'm good to go. I got to, I got to help. This is my, I got to help people really, really powerful there in terms of, you know, that dialogue. Um, the next one is discovering and understand the villain's object of desire. And that's the MacGuffin. And so, you know, Ares wants to destroy the world and return the world to quote unquote paradise um, before, you know, mankind existed. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the Amazons were created to stop him. And Diana is the God killer, as is revealed later. The, the next one is hero's initial strategy against a villain fails. Um, this happens inside the guard tower where Diana quote unquote kills Ares, which is Ludendorff. But then, oh, the war doesn't end. The gas is still going to be dropped. Uh, and then, you know, Sir Patrick also reveals himself as well. He's really Ares. And so there's a whole kind of ensuing thing. Um, you know, Steve tells her, you know, that maybe people are just bad and they're unsavable. And, you know, she's conflicted about that. Um, so this is, you know, for her a little confusing, but again, it's sort of like a quote unquote false ending. Realizing they must change their approach is the next one to salvage some of form of victory. The hero reaches all his loss moment. And, you know, this is related to, you know, the gas and they're still going to drop it. Um, you know, again, this is also a little bit interesting because, you know, there, there is kind of two heroes in this. Steve is a hero as well as, as, as Wonder Woman, but, you know, she, she's still a little conflicted because, um, for her, you know, she, she has feelings for Steve, but, you know, Steve's going to ultimately sacrifice his life and he's going to take the, the gas out and, you know, blow it up. And so he, he ends up dying. Uh, and then, you know, she's again, still needs to have, needs to want to kill, kill Ares as well. Uh, the next one is a hero at the mercy of the villain. I mean, this is in the guard tower, uh, with Ludendorff first. And then as Sir Patrick comes away, or appears as Ares and then destroys her sword. And she basically, basically says, Hey, you know what? You're really the God killer. And then she's got to deal with that. And then the, the last and final one is the hero sacrifices rewarded. So clearly um, Diane sacrifices her safety um, on the Island and then comes out and defeats Ares. So you sort of see the sacrifice, you know, the start of it and then the beginning or the end when she actually finally defeats Ares. So, um, you know, it, this is, again, a lot of this, the challenges with, you know, like a, a superhero action movie, you know, some some people, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of these, you know, cliches. I know Valerie and I had talked a little bit again about this, about, 
the my favorite line is, you know, I'm willing to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, which again is the classic superhero line. It's a little bit cliche, but but there nonetheless. And I think that's the reason why we love some of these superhero movies so much is like you just like, oh yeah, I wish I wish someone like Wonder Woman existed in the world to, you know, get rid of all the tyranny and, and injustice. And I think that's why these, you know, feel feel good and you always want them to win. So very true. Thanks, Jari. I'm struck by the fact that there are, this movie does have two heroes, Diana and Steve, and that sent me looking at Kim Hudson's book, The Virgin's Promise, which is, we'll put it in the show notes, it's a feminine take on Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And this movie fits a couple of them really closely, and I wonder if readers or listeners might be interested in having a look at this book if they're telling a story that's centered on women or women's uh, women characters. The first one is that the character starts in a dependent world where she holds back her essential nature in order to conform to the dictates of others. This is instead of um, refusing the call, right? And that actually happens in this movie. And then she pays the price of conformity because she she has to be driven towards her full destiny. Now, Diana is very willing to go, but she is held back. And then she has an opportunity to shine. And the following uh, trope of the Virgin's Promise is after she has the opportunity to shine, which is the battle on the beach, she dresses the part. That is actually a characteristic of this type of story. And we see that literally played out where she dons her her uniform and dresses the part of the hero that she's going to be. Anyway, I won't go on and on with the Virgin's Promise um, steps, but they differ slightly from the hero's journey steps and have a slightly different intent. And I think every writer should interest him or herself in that alternate version of the hero's journey. So let's move on to the conventions, which Valerie's going to walk us through. Go ahead, Valerie. Sure. Um, so for the conventions, there are five for an action story. The first one is that the hero, victim, and villain roles must be clearly defined throughout the story, and the protagonist must be a hero. So at the six-minute mark, Hippolyta's story tells the audience outright who the hero, victim, and villain of the story are. The Amazons, heroes, were created to protect mankind, who are the victims, from Ares, the villain. And that doesn't really change too much throughout the film. Uh, it, well, you know, it, it refines, but it doesn't change in that the Amazons become represented by Diana and so on. Now, as far as the hero goes, Wonder Woman has a special place in the comic book world. She was created as a superhero who would triumph not with fists or firepower, but with love. I found it interesting then that she would overthrow the villain with her fists and firepower or lightning power as the case may be. And Robert McKee picked up on this too. And I swear I thought of it first before I saw it on Robert McKee. <laughs> um, and I'll link to uh, his works doesn't work review in the show notes. But in that he questions whether in modern society, we want to portray a strong woman as violent. Quote, if our sorry society is to progress, we must empower women as an equal, hopefully greater, force of moral good, unquote. And as far as the villain goes, although Ares is the main villain, he has agents in the form of Maru and Ludendorff. Um, 
And they, as both he and Diana state, are guided by his suggestions and they carry out his plan of evil. And I found it also when I was doing some research, the director, Patty Jenkins, said that from her point of view, there isn't a bad guy in the film. That when she was making the movie, the whole idea is that uh, the whole Aries whole In terms of the villain, although Ares is the main villain, he has agents on Earth in the form of Maru and Ludendorff. And Ares and Diana both state that Maru and Ludendorff are guided by his suggestions and carry out his plans for him. When I was doing some research for this, I found an interview with Patty Jenkins, the director, and she said that as far as she was concerned, there wasn't a bad guy in the film. The point of what she was trying to do with the the antagonist in the film is that Ares has a point that mankind is corrupt and that we have to see that there's logic to what he's doing. And this, of course, is true. Villains do need to have a point. Otherwise, they're just mustache twirlers. I would argue, though, that there most certainly is a bad guy in this film. It's Ares, and he has agents, Maru and Ludendorff. So... So I'm actually going to argue with the director of the film. <laughs> uh, why not? Uh, the second convention is that the hero's object of desire is to stop the villain and save the victim. At the 28-minute mark, Diana states her desire to stop Ares. She says, quote, stopping the god of war is our foreordinance. As Amazons, this is our duty. She repeats some version of that throughout the film. I counted seven additional times. I won't go through them all here, but I've listed them in the show notes. <laughs> Ad nauseum, you say in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> Ad nauseum. Well, I think eight times is a bit much. It's a bit much. Mm -hmm. um, so the third convention is that the power divide between the hero and the villain is very large. The villain is far more powerful than the hero. I don't think that's the case in this film, actually. Diana is definitely younger, younger being a relative term when you're speaking of gods, and she is less experienced, but she's certainly not less powerful. Both Diana and Ares are gods. In fact, they're half-siblings, Zeus being the father of both. So in terms of physical strength, they're fairly evenly matched. Again, according to Robert McKee, Diana is even stronger than Ares. She does defeat him in the end. And I think that what Robert McKee has to say here is really interesting. So I'm just going to read a quote again from that works doesn't work review that I've linked to in the show notes. Here's the quote. The action genre can deliver a positive climax in just one of three ways. The hero overpowers the villain, the hero outsmarts the villain, or the hero does both outsmarts and overpowers. Outsmarting doesn't mean Outsmarting means discovering a hidden flaw in the villain and, in a jujitsu-like move, exploiting it. Needless to say, a climax that pivots on the hero outsmarting the villain is far more satisfying than her overpowering him with brute muscle. But then, an amazing feat of outsmarting calls for a screenplay with mental muscle. Ares has no hidden flaw to discover, outsmart, and exploit. He's just weaker than Wonder Woman, so ripe for defeat. We're told that he was once the most murderous god on Olympus. If so, that doesn't say much for the power of Zeus and his fellow deities. I doubt that Satan, the Christian god of evil, would crumple like Ares. 
So Robert McKee is really not leaving any doubt as to where he stands on this film. And as I mentioned a minute ago, I also thought it was really interesting that given what Wonder Woman is supposed to embody, I thought it was, I thought it would have been more satisfying for me if she had outsmarted Ares because that's what she's kind of all about. Um, and it would have seemed more in character. Although, as Jari alluded to, this particular portrayal of Wonder Woman doesn't really emphasize her intellectual prowess. And I agree wholeheartedly with something Anne said a little earlier, that is naivete doesn't mean stupidity. And it kind of felt a little bit like that in this film. Now that said, I, you know, I enjoyed the film. There's some great CGI and, you know, it looks great on a big screen and all that fun stuff. But I have a little bias toward Wonder Woman and I would have liked her to have been clever. All right, moving on. Speech in praise of the villain. Since there are many villains, there are also many speeches in praise of the various villains. So we've got three. The first one is when Hippolyta reads the bedtime story to young Diana, and that's six minutes into the film. She talks about Ares' power and his defeat of all the gods of Olympus. At 24 minutes into the film, Steve Trevor gives a speech in praise of Dr. Maru and Ludendorff. And at an hour and 51 minutes into the film, Ares actually gives a speech in praise of himself. Of course he would. He's Ares. And this is when he's trying to convince Diana to join him. Finally, there are like a zillion subgenres of action. I don't have the list in front of me, but there's a bunch. And each of those subgenres would have specific conventions. And um, so when I was coming up with this, initially I thought that the subgenre might be action duel, person against person. And the, the plot, subplot within that is the hero chases the villain. That's the revenge plot. But that was kind of bothering me because Diana is not seeking revenge. So I went back and had a, a deeper think of it. Not particularly a, a lot deeper because it is Wonder Woman. It doesn't, it's not Marathon Man. This is Wonder Woman. And I came up with the same conclusion that Leslie came up with uh, at the beginning, which is the action epic person against the state savior, hero versus the villain intent on social destruction. Either way, it's pretty whatever you want to label it, it's pretty obvious that Diana spends the entire film chasing Ares so that she can can defeat him and in her mind, restore peace to mankind. So those are the conventions. Excellent. You know, I think the fact that there are two different strong heroes in this story um, helps cover some of these conventions because Steve covers a couple of them. He outsmarts his villain, who's kind of Ludendorff or the German army, uh, or Air Force, whatever it is, when he hijacks the plane and he sacrifices his life to, you know, outwit the the forces of evil that want to spray the gas all over Belgium. So it was interesting to me and some of my sense of unease about the movie, although I totally enjoyed it, don't get me wrong, <laughs> was the sense that there are two heroes kind of pursuing different stories in a way, different types of stories. Um, I just wanted to say that 
this is an interesting case of a story that does have these palpable flaws, as McKee has called out and Valerie has pointed out to us. And yet I found it personally satisfying because the opening scenes on Themyscira reminded me of a little bit of how I felt on watching Black Panther. There's a powerful, secret, fully formed society with its own purposes and not a white person in sight. And here, the same thing, but not a male person in sight. And to me, the vision of women remaining powerful warriors and rulers and they're shown well into middle age. They have clear, you know, wrinkles in their skin and, and they're, and they're still warriors. This was, this was so gratifying to me. It made me forgive a whole lot of later <laughs> flaws and plot holes because I was just really excited to see people like me represented as having agency and their own world and their own rules. And the reason I mentioned this is that this goes to the target audience question that every writer should be thinking about. Please them and they will forgive you for a lot of imperfections in the story because that's what this did for me. So. Oh yeah. The, yeah. I mean, I think the, to, to your point, the best scene for this whole, um, you know, notion of wow this is what it this is a different perspective this is what it looks like to have strong you know female characters and strong uh you know warrior ethos is when the amazons are battling the germans on the beach i mean how often do you see complete i mean the skill level and the coordination i mean if you're not even need to be into violence to like appreciate man that's pretty tough what you know, what they're doing, you know, repelling down archery off the horse and, you know, all these sort of things. It's, it's just such a powerful scene. And it really shows um, how, how the Amazons are gonna, you know, they're, they're there to crush Ares or they're there to protect mankind. And believe me, you don't want to mess with them. And it's pretty cool. Well, and I thought that the the real for me the 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 scene before that where we see the women just training, and there's not I mean they're all women and they're just out there training the hell out of themselves and without reference to an oncoming enemy of men, just this is what they do, this is who they are, this is their world. That was so gratifying to me that. I was just like, I don't care what else happens in this movie. I love this movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's the equivalent of the Spartans, right? No, no, they're they're the equivalent of the Spartans. I mean, this is three hundred, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what they. Yeah, which is right. why I think Wonder Woman should look more like Steffi Cohen. And I'm totally putting Steffi Cohen's Instagram link in the show notes because she is amazing. She can squat like five hundred pounds. That's what Wonder Woman she should is look like. Impressive, in my opinion, very impressive. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I agree with you, or or Serena Williams, or somebody like that, or tr a genuinely athletic female body. But anyway, to get the movie made, you had to have a very, very beautiful woman with very thin thighs, and that's what we got. At least she's a woman, and she does cool stunts. So I just want to point out really quickly, you know, Anne, everything that you're saying about the beginning on the island with the women and how they're training, and that it's so satisfying to see that actually what Robert McKee said, it, it really bothered me. You know, he's saying, you know, the danger of portraying strong women as violent and, you know, the need for them to be a moral good. And okay. So the, what it brought up for me is it's this random callback to when I was a kid, 
um, you know, we watched the movie Little Women, and there's this line in it where they're talking about whether or not women should have the vote, you know, women's suffrage. And the men there, you know, they're in support of, you know, women having the vote, but they're saying it's because, you know, women need to be this force of moral good to help the corrupt men, you know, even things out. And, you know, the main character, Joe March, you know, she says, you know, I don't think women should have the right to vote because we're good, but because we're equal parts of this society. So I guess it just bothers me um, that if we're saying that women are equal and we want strong female characters, then however the character needs to show up for the story is how she needs to show up for the story. And whether that's with physical strength or physical violence, then that's it. Um, And it shouldn't be, well, you know, because she's, we need to show women this way that we need to show a character a certain way, you know, um, here in, in Wonder Woman, you know, Diana, she is morally good. She is both strong um, and able to defend herself and the powerless um, as well as, you know, she's both physically strong and able to protect herself and she's willing and able to defend the powerless. So she has that amazing, you know, she's both things. Um, and so I just think that that comment rubbed me the wrong way um, because it seems like it's missing the point, uh, you know, about what we want out of our female characters. Yes. Holy heck yes. <laughs> Kim, I'm going to find a clip of uh, an audience entirely composed of women <laughs> shouting and screaming in applause. Yay! Awesome. Yes, thank so, you. <laughs> yes. Leslie, let's go on to the point of view and narrative device for this movie. Okay, so Wonder Woman begins with a first-person point of view framing story. When Diana is in present-day Paris, we could call this portion the I as witness which Friedman talks about in his point of view in fiction. Because she's the same person, but she tells the story as if she's observing her own experience from a great distance in time, certainly. Through this, we know that she survives whatever ordeal she's going to face, and this creates dramatic irony because we know more than the character in the past. But we also experience a combination of mystery and suspense. Present day Diana knows the lesson she's going to learn from the events of the story, but Diana of the past possesses the same ignorance that we do about that same lesson. In the present, Diana receives a photo with four men, we later learn are her companions on this adventure, And the photo triggers her memories of childhood where we follow her training in summary until one day when Steve and German soldiers crash into her world and she becomes involved in the war to end all wars. So the bulk of the story is told in that flashback. Present day Diana disappears and is replaced with what Friedman calls the camera So we have access to the character's words and actions, but not their thoughts or feelings, other than what's apparent from the outside. We stay with Diana through most of the film, but we see occasional scenes where she's absent, which provide more dramatic irony when we learn what her mother discusses with her aunt, as well as what the Germans are up to. This doesn't happen, though, until we're firmly settled into the story. 
That's a really interesting point. Those alternate points of view, the scenes where Diana's not present, didn't really strike me. But you're right, they're there and they do carry uh, some important burden of the story. So go on to the objects of desire, please. So the conscious object of desire or want is that Diana wants to end war forever and save humans from Ares. What she needs, her unconscious object of desire, is to gain a more mature understanding that she can't simply overpower Ares by channeling anger and using violence. Great. I felt those were both fairly clear, too. Um, What about the controlling idea and theme? The typical controlling idea for an action story with a positive ending is life is preserved when heroes overpower or outwit their external and internal antagonists. Because Diana goes through a strong internal change, the means by which she defeats Ares comes to her through her internal transformation. So I ended up with life is preserved when the hero outwits the villain by abandoning her one-dimensional understanding that violence and anger can end war and realizes instead that she must metabolize anger to create peace through love and understanding. Oh, very nice. I like that. And when you when you read that sentence, I feel all the feelings that I had in the movie. It's it's that's a good one. I like it. So now we go on to our question seven, our favorite part of the show, where we look at good examples, special scene types, outstanding tropes, clear tie-ins to other genres, and so forth. Valerie, I know you had a couple things to say here. Absolutely, and we've already touched on both of them, actually. The first one that I wanted to talk about was a story like this being a great way to see story grid methodology and story structure in action. Something that people listening to this podcast may not be aware of is that the five of us have been doing this pretty much every week for nearly a year now, 11 months. And when we first started, we started with um, how to lose a guy in 10 days. Uh, which is a pretty straightforward movie with a solid story structure. And even given that, the five of us spent a good hour just talking about where the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff started and ended. So it might sound like coming up with these six core questions, coming up with answers to the questions should be fairly straightforward. But in fact, it might take you quite a while to figure out how they all work, which is why a story like this can just be so much easier on your head when you're learning. And even though, you know, personally, the only real issue I have with this story is that I personally would have liked to have seen Wonder Woman outwit as well as physically overpower Aries, but that's a personal bias. The story works. It, it like Guardians of the Galaxy, is built like a tank from a story structure point of view. So it's, this is a really great, <laughs> yeah, it's a really great story to learn on. The second point that I wanted to raise, which ties into my first one, is that story structure trumps writing style. So often when I'm dealing with clients and just talking to other writers, they want to zoom right into uh, getting a copy editor or looking at their line by line writing, which is important. You do need to have a copy editor and a proofreader and all that good stuff. 
But step one is getting the structure of the story in place. And because the truth of the matter is, if the story structure is in place, the story won't work. And a well-crafted sentence cannot save you from a manuscript that doesn't work. Your audience, your reader will not be engaged with the story. They won't continue to read. They may not get to the end and they won't be recommending it to their friends. The, uh, the other side of that is if your story structure is really solid, but maybe your line by line is a bit weaker, you can get away with that. And I'm putting get away with in quotes because personally I'd like to see, and what I strive for in my writing is to have strong story structure and strong line by line writing, which I think is ultimately the goal. But there's a lot of writers out there with a strong story structure, but not a strong line by line writing style, and they're making a fine living. Now, a couple of our uh, fellow StoryGrid editor colleagues, Julie Blair and Shelley Speary, came up with a great uh, cheat sheet, I guess you'd like to call it, of what the five different types of editors are and what they do. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if if you're like me, when I, w- when I was starting out, I didn't even know there were different types of editors. I just knew I needed an editor to do something with my first book, and I wasn't even sure what. This will give you an idea as to what type of editor does what and will give you an idea at which point in your career you need or which point in the life of the manuscript that you need each of the different editors. Um, I was in a writing workshop over the weekend and around the table, the story that was told by like five out of the 12 people at the workshop was, I tried hiring an editor and I got quote unquote ripped off because, and the story was, I didn't know what I was looking for in an editor and the editor did not know how to define their offerings, their products. And so it was a complete waste of money. So definitely everybody have a look at this fantastic resource from Julian Shelley. It's, it's excellent. Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, we talk a lot about this in the entrepreneur world with product market fit and how uh, whatever offering you're trying to give to the world or buy from the world, how that's going to solve a problem. And a lot of times, especially in the the creative arts, I guess would be the word I'd use, um, that gets super muddled and people really don't kind of understand as both uh, Valerie and Anne mentioned, uh, what they're looking for and what they really need. And and I just wanted to really reiterate, uh, what Valerie said about overall macro structure. Um, if, if something works at the macro level, a lot of times that the micro level, there's a lot of forgiveness, uh, especially when it's something that really like hits you um, as the reader or the viewer. And of course, you know, Wonder Woman just stands the test of time is such a powerful story with a, with a great global arc. I mean, you just can't get any better uh, than what the Amazons. I mean, my God, the Amazons, what they want to do and what, what Diana wants to do. And the thing that's really great also about Wonder Woman, as opposed to other action movies or other action heroes, is that she's truly altruistic. I mean, she doesn't. She doesn't really doesn't have a lot of ego. In fact, she seems egoless in some ways. All she wants to do is save the rest, save the world. Um, it's not about um, domination. It's literally she brings her powers to bear to, in the service of others, and it's not to be more quote unquote macho or like show off. It's literally like, I got to save these people. And that's a a theme throughout the whole, um, whole movie, which 
you know, again, a little bit of, of naive, naivete uh, within her, which I, I agree. I wish they followed a little bit more what they did in the TV series with Linda Carter, although they did um, definitely keep the turtlenecks and long pants <laughs> to sort of not show her badassness, I guess would be the word. Um, but but yeah, it it's it's just the only complaint again I have is that I wish they put a little bit more of her smarts in because, you know, she as a character not only has the physical prowess, but is also really intelligent. And sometimes, you know, um, you don't want to use your might. You want to use your brain. I mean, there's a saying that the, the most important six inches in the battlefield is between your ears because that is 100% true. Like, doesn't matter how strong you are if you're not thinking that's bad. So I feel like with the framing story, they have set up for future uh, sequels where Diana's sophistication and intelligence is highlighted because we see her working at the Louvre and she has fancy computers and she's very smart. And so next installment will probably bring that element out in her. And I'm, I'm happy to wait. Sequel, 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 sequel. Yes, bring us a sequel. And I think they probably will. Oh, yeah, no doubt. There's another great trope in here, just a just one that, that never fails, and that's the fish out of water. Kim mentioned it. You take a traveler from a backward place or a sheltered past or a time traveler and put them in a world that's familiar to the reader or the viewer, and you get this wonderful dose of dramatic irony, usually um, to humorous effect. So we have that here when Diana arrives in London. But the interesting piece about this was that London in 1917 is just far enough back in history that you and I will would almost, if we were transported there, would be almost as flummoxed as Diana. So that lends a bit of suspense too, like how will she cope? And then in the midst of all that, we get the the dressing room scene. It's a familiar, fun trope. It's a montage of trying on outfits. I've seen it done over and over, coming out of the dressing room, wearing something else, or another kind of montage where the character is trying different things on to find out how they will be able to fit in or blend in. And the humor of her not understanding restrictive ladies wear from 1917 was was excellent. So you can use this. This does not depend on cinema. This is a writing a, a writing trope that that you can use to go to fact the fish out of water. If you need some comedy, stick them in a, an unfamiliar situation and either terrify them or, or let us laugh at them. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. You're right. It's like one of those, it's like a little break, you know, I think we talk a lot about this. Yeah. Well, we talk a lot about this in writing. You just can't go, you know, up to 11, up to 11, up to 11, up to 11, up to 11 all the time. You're just going to wear the reader out. In fact, you, you'll even wear out the person or the audience is watching the movie. You need these little breaks where the lull in the action is, okay, let's reset. Let me calm down a little bit. You know, you can't just go action, 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 action. You kind of want to see some humanity as well, which I, which again, you know, the, that's the best fish out of water. Trying on all the outfits is pretty awesome. And then the, the one last thing I want to say is in the, the overall list of highest grossing superhero movies of all time, Wonder Woman is number six. And uh, Black Panther is number one. So uh, 
Yeah. Top top ten, <laughs> uh, top. 10. So we can be pretty sure of a pretty sure of a sequel. Yeah, I am, there's. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, they're con- They're going to make Ant Man two or whatever they're going to call it, and that <laughs> didn't do as well. I mean, you know, again, it's 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 these again, just brilliant. I mean, DC Comics and even Marvel, for whatever reason, there's this resurgent of resurgent. Sorry, of all these superheroes, these comic book characters that are coming back to life and. You know, like we talked about in in the Hurt Locker, it may just be society's time where they kind of need to feel heroes. Heroes, they need heroes, and they, there's they have they need to find a hero. And <laughs> okay, well that wraps it up for this week, everybody. Great discussion. Thank you, Jari, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie, for all these great insights into this tank of a movie, Wonder Woman. We hope that our discussion helps everybody write a better action story. You'll be able to find The Fool's Cap and other materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. We'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations, and if you have a favorite movie that you'd like us to look at, suggest it on Twitter at StoryGridRT. We got a couple of suggestions this week. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com slash editing and also have a look at the aforementioned list of editorial types that will be in the show notes. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to each of our websites can be found in the show notes. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us again next time when we examine the society genre with the 2014 biopic Selma. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.